Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. We live in what could probably charitably be called a cynical age. And if you read today's epistle reading from Philippians chapter 4, in the spirit of that age, you might come away with the idea that the reading is filled with empty platitudes, like some sort of Christian hallmark greeting card. Yet the context of St. Paul's letter to the Philippians helps us understand that what he writes here are not empty words, but they're actually quite profound. They're actually quite subversive and countercultural. Paul wrote these words from a prison cell. He tells us this in chapter 1, verses 12 through 25. Further, in chapter 2, verse 17, Paul seems to anticipate that his execution is coming as he mentions being poured out like a drink offering, which is an expression he also uses in 2 Timothy 4, 6. So Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians in which he includes numerous exhortations to rejoice from a prison cell, not a place we tend to associate with rejoicing. But what about the Philippians? Why is he telling them that they need to rejoice? Well, it helps to know the history of Philippi to understand why the church there needed a little bit of encouragement. The city got its name from Philip II in 356 BC, who was the king of Macedonia and the father of Alexander the Great. But its significance in Paul's day can be understood in tandem with the history of the Roman Empire. Prior to Julius Caesar, Rome was ruled by two elected consuls. Julius Caesar came to power at a tumultuous time of civil war and was named dictator due to his victory over his rival, Pompey. But not everyone in Rome was pleased with the new arrangement, and a group of senators led by Brutus and Cassius assassinated Caesar. The power vacuum left by the assassination did not lead to peace but more civil war, as the conspirators fought against Caesar loyalists led by Mark Antony and Caesar's legal successor and nephew, Gaius Octavius. The war between the two sides was decided, ironically, at the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. When the loyalist party defeated the assassins, there was no longer an enemy to be united against, and so tensions began to mount between Mark Antony and Octavius, who engaged each other in yet another civil war. Eventually, Octavius defeated Mark Antony and his wife, Cleopatra, and Octavius was named the official, first official emperor under the name Augustus Caesar. Further, the Roman Senate declared Julius Caesar to have been divine, and they bestowed the title Son of the Divine, on Octavius Augustus. Augustus' imperial authority led to what is now called the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome, a time of relative peace and stability that resulted from the strong grip the Romans held over their empire. One of Augustus' policies was to make Philippi a Roman colony, and to ensure Roman hegemony in the area, he settled the region with retired soldiers who were loyal to him, and renamed the colony after his own family. 
The city became a miniature version of Rome, an intensely patriotic city. One of the problems with this is that Rome's founding myth was reliant on this emperor worship. Augustus wasn't just to be obeyed, he was to be worshipped. When Paul visited Philippi on his missionary journey, which is detailed in Acts chapter 16, he was met with suspicion. The people there said, These men, being Jews, do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. This is because Christianity asks us not only to abstain from the sin of idolatry, but also to subjugate all of our identity to God. Where we're from, our status as citizens in earthly kingdoms are secondary or really tertiary in relation to our identity as citizens of heaven. So the abstention from emperor worship by the Philippian Christians would have been visible to their neighbors, and as a result, they would have been punished. It was visible because nationalistic piety was an everyday occurrence in Philippi. It was in the markets. It was at sporting events. It was at all public gatherings. And so Christian non-participation would have stuck out like a sore thumb, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to worship the statue of Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon in the Old Testament book of Daniel. This refusal, then, to participate would have led to blowback from the Romans, their neighbors, who saw this Christian resistance to the emperor cult as an assault on their values and way of life. All this context makes Paul's letter to the church at Philippi quite subversive of the Roman nationalism that was embodied by this emperor cult. Throughout the letter, he emphasizes citizenship in the heavenly kingdom as superior to any earthly citizenship. He reminds the Philippians that their Lord and Savior wasn't Caesar, those were titles that Caesar took for himself, but Jesus. He lamented over those Christians who gave in to social pressure and capitulated, losing sight of their true calling. And finally, in our reading today, he puts forward the peace of God as that which guards our hearts and minds, not Caesar's Pax Romana. It is in this context, then, that Paul exhorts the persecuted Philippian church to rejoice always. Far from being empty words, this exhortation is bold, reminding us that joy is a Christian duty rooted in our relationship with God, ultimately bringing us peace. Given the centrality of joy in our reading today, it might be helpful to define our terms, especially as Paul would have understood it and as he meant it. Because I would argue that when Paul says rejoice, he means something different than how we normally use the word joy. Merriam-Webster tells us that joy is a feeling of great happiness or the emotion evoked by well-being, success, or good fortune, or by the prospect of possessing what one desires. Yet the context of Philippians doesn't allow us to understand Paul's use of joy as purely synonymous with happiness. It certainly does denote gladness or delight, but of a deeper kind than just happiness, because happiness is based on our external circumstances. 
You're happy when a loved one gives you a present. You're happy when you find a $20 bill. But if you don't have any money and you need it, or if you don't get a present from a loved one, then you might describe yourself as sad. But joy, as Paul is detailing it, is not based on circumstances. I would argue it's not even mutually exclusive with grief. Based on the context of Philippians, joy is a kind of gladness which isn't contingent on material status, good health, or positive circumstance. Joy for the Christian comes purely from a recognition of what God has accomplished for us and in participating in the suffering of our Lord. When Paul tells the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, he speaks in an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's something that they should do. This is because joy demonstrates that we understand and appreciate what God has done for us. So in a few days, we'll exchange gifts with friends and family around trees, which will bring us a sense of joy. But as great as that joy is, it's just a modicum of the joy that we experience because of what God has done for us. It's a window into the joy of joys, of receiving the great gift that he gives us. This joy that we have about what God has done for us then should spill over into our behavior. And Paul gives us three ways that this joy should be evident. Moderation, prayer, and thanksgiving. Now, the Greek word for moderation here is probably better translated into modern English by the word gentleness, which is the result of our appreciation of what God has done. This gentleness is not just aimed at, one, at those in one's immediate family or in their church family. Rather, the gentleness St. Paul urges the Philippians to show is directed at all people, regardless of their familial status or even their status as Christians. This would include, for the Philippians, their neighbors who were persecuting them. Not only did Paul instruct the Philippians to be gentle, he commanded them to come to God in everything with prayer and supplication. And this command goes back to what Paul says earlier in the lesson. He says, the Lord is at hand. And this phrase is really sort of working as a double entendre in the reading, in that it can be a reminder of God's coming judgment which has been our focus during Advent and should serve as an impetus for us to act righteously in the present. But also that phrase, the Lord is at hand, is a reminder of God's enduring presence with us, which would have been an especially comforting idea to the Philippian church undergoing persecution. He is closer to us than we are to ourselves, as St. Augustine reminds us. Because he is at hand, then, we can turn to him in prayer, no matter what the situation. Because he's at hand, we know that he loves us and that he wants what's best for us, and we can always talk to him. Finally, Paul reminds the Philippians to be thankful. God has given us so much that we should be constantly living out of gratitude. Thankfulness comes from joy because it's based on a recognition of what God has done for us. In the daily offices of morning and evening prayer, we pray the following prayer of thanksgiving. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all, for thine inestimable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace 
and for the hope of glory. Everything that we have is because of God's grace. And this recognition should let us not only be thankful in spite of our difficult circumstances, but it should actually make us thankful for those difficult circumstances, because we know that in them, God is working for our good. When cultivated, this joy causes us to be gentle towards others, prayerful and thankful, and these things all give way to peace. Peace can be understood as stability, a restful and quiet confidence. And we all look for peace in all sorts of things, jobs, security, finances. But whatever peace we attain in those things will not last. It's like the parable Jesus tells of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12, in which a rich man tears down his barns and builds bigger ones to store his surplus of grain, saying to himself, Thou hast much good laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, Thou fool, This night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. The kind of peace that we get from our faith in God isn't fleeting. It's not going anywhere. It's not, we don't lose it. It's deep, as St. Paul says. It passeth understanding. And we only get this peace with joy. I came across this story this week about joy. St. Francis of Assisi was a medieval saint and the founder of the Franciscan order, which is made up of monks who pledged themselves to aid the poor by taking vows of poverty. And on a winter's day, Francis was walking with a friend named Brother Leo from one town to another, and they were freezing because they couldn't afford warm clothes. As they were walking, Francis turned to Leo And said, if God desired that all the friars should be a great example of holiness to all people in all lands, please write down that this would not be perfect joy. A little later, Francis turned to Leo and said, if the friars could make the lame walk, and if we could straighten the crooked, if we could chase away the demons, if we could give sight to the blind and speech to the dumb, And if we could raise the dead after four days, please write down and note carefully that this is not perfect joy. A little later, Francis again started, if the friars could speak every language, if they knew everything about science, if they could explain all the scriptures, if they could predict the future and reveal the secrets of every soul, please write down and note carefully that this would not be perfect joy. After a few more steps, Francis, getting more excited, exclaimed, Brother Leo, if the friars could sing like angels, if they could explain the movements of the stars, if they knew everything about all animals, birds, fish, plants, stones, trees, and all people, please write down and note carefully that this would not be perfect joy. And finally, he cried again, Brother Leo, if the friars could preach and thus convert every person to faith in Christ, Please write down and note carefully that even this is not perfect joy. This, of course, piqued Brother Leo's interest, like it may have piqued yours. And so Brother Leo turns to Francis and asked him what perfect joy was. And Francis replied, If we arrive at our destination 
And if we are drenched with rain and trembling with cold, covered in mud and exhausted from hunger, and if we knock on the gate and aren't recognized by the porter who tells us that we are imposters and leaves us outside exposed to the rain and snow, suffering from cold and hunger, then if we embrace the injustice, cruelty, and contempt with patience, without complaining, and if we believe in faith, love, and humility that the porter knew us but was told by God to reject us, then, my brother Leo, please write down, And note carefully that this is perfect joy. Above all the gifts of the Holy Spirit that Christ Jesus gives to his friends is the grace to overcome oneself, to accept willingly out of love for him all contempt, all discomfort, all injury, and all suffering. And this and all other gifts we ourselves should not boast because all things are gifts from God. So, at the end of this Advent season and the beginning of our celebration of the Nativity of our Lord, it's important for us that we choose joy. We choose joy in our relationship with God by praying to Him. We choose joy in our relationship with God through thanksgiving. But most of all, we choose joy when we imitate the cross of our Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in good times, but especially rejoice when things are hard. Because when you rejoice, you're expressing your reliance on and faith in our Lord. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.